What makes an icon, a superstar, a runaway success? It's something we've been thinking about a lot this season of making. Every week, we've looked at an influential figure, talking with their family, their closest friends and collaborators. And there's one thing that's really stuck with us. For every one of these figures, it's not just a matter of how, not just a matter of what, but when. Like Robin Rihanna Fenty. When did her story change from Island Girl with a Dream to Island Girl with a Chance? Or Jesse Jackson, whose childhood peers teased him, called him a bastard child. When did the schoolyard taunts turn from discouragement to ammunition? Or Frederick Douglass, enslaved and exploited. When did he alter the course of his own future? From WBEZ Chicago, this is Making. I'm Brandon Pope. And today, we're looking back at some of the key moments from this season of Making. The super critical win moments, the make or break moments, the put up or shut up moments that change the course of a life and oftentimes the course of history. The fight was everything. Do you want to come up and take a shot at this? He respectfully told her, call me what you want. You'll be proud to know this bastard. It was that moment where everybody that saw the video, they went, who is that? Yeah. I just turned to one of my assistant coaches and I said, this kid's going to be a pro. That's coming up on Making in just a minute. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. Over this season of making, there's been something that's really stuck with us. For every iconic figure we profiled, there's usually one defining moment, often early on in their lives, when everything changed. Today on the show, we're looking at a few of those moments. And first up, Rihanna. This is her at age 15, persuaded by her friends to sign up for her high school talent show. On the podcast, we spoke with the record producer who discovered her, Evan Rogers. When I spoke with Evan, I asked him to tell the story of the first time he met Rihanna. She auditioned for him in Barbados. So, okay, well, I was there because my wife is from Barbados. So we would go to Barbados all the time. That's our our main hang. Being a record producer, songwriter, people knew on the island the the word gets around. So it wasn't unusual for people to ask for auditions or, you know, so-and-so knows someone who can sing. So this was just another uh, one of those three 15-year-old girls. Could they come by the villa? And, of course, uh, you never know. So the three of them came for their audition. Rihanna was late, went home, I believe, to change uh, to get her look just how she wanted it. And they all sang for me. Rihanna sang Dangerously in Love. And I just heard something really unique and special in her vocals, even though they were raw. And she had a presence when she walked into the room. And it was just one of those moments where I I think I have something really special here. So I had to organize 
a follow-up meeting with just her and her mother um, the next day. And that's when we had the talk about, do you want to come up and take a shot at this? And I warned her, it's a roller coaster. You're going to get kicked in the gut. It's like the music business is tough. Are you sure? And I'll never forget, with no hesitation, it was like, it's all I've ever wanted. And I was like, that's the right answer. <laughs> One thing I love about this story is how Evan Rogers, just right away, he saw talent and he just had to harness it. And Rihanna was that talent. That, that's such a story that's out of left field, like a dollar in a dream type of story. And I just love that. And I also love Rihanna in this moment. She walks in last, makeup done, outfit perfect. She came prepared to shine. And she knew this was an opportunity of a lifetime you know, some may not take that so seriously, thinking there's always going to be another shot, another opportunity down the line, but not Rihanna. And I just love that about her. Now, our next make or break moment involves a civil rights legend, Jesse Jackson. Pick up your slingshot. Pick up your rock. Declare our time has come. He's probably best known for his activism and his sweeping oratory. Red, yellow, black, and white. We're all precious in God's sight. Our time has come. He was also a serious contender for the American presidency. Jesse Jackson for president. Paving a path that Barack Obama would later follow in. But before all that, Jackson had a difficult childhood. He grew up in a racially segregated South Carolina he didn't learn who his father was until he was just seven years old. He was bullied by classmates for being a, quote, nobody with no daddy. So I asked his biographer, Barbara Ann Reynolds, if those schoolyard taunts affected him. Right. I want to tell you just how deeply it affected him. Hmm. One of his teachers, Mrs. Norris, she said, I remember Jesse as a sharp dresser. He wore suits and ties when other students were wearing blue jeans. In fact, uh, envious teenagers used to playfully tease him about his penchant for dignified dress. And he said one day, uh, Jesse heard a front porch coffee sipper quip, there goes Noah's bastard, thinking he's better than everybody else. Look how he's dressed. And Jesse will around and respectfully told her, go ahead, call me what you want. I am Noah's bastard, if that's what you want to call me. But one day, you'll be proud to know this bastard. Wow. I had the, the privilege of going back home with him to Greenville, 1973. And his speech was remarkable. You know, I was there looking, and I said, could this be? Uh, him thinking about Jack the grocer. When he was eight years old, he went into a store and he called for a white man to, to come and, and, and help him. And the, and the grocer held a gun to his head and said, don't you ever demand a white man to do anything. Was he thinking about that man? Was he thinking about the gossip monger who called him a bastard when he was 14? And at that moment, I mean, in my own eyes, he looked almost angelic. And I said to myself, there, Told you so. I told you I'd be the best damn bastard you've ever seen. The next defining moment we got for you is truly astounding. 
Frederick Douglass was born into slavery. He taught himself to read, escaped bondage, and then became one of the country's leading abolitionists and an advisor to multiple presidents. This all in an era when many, if not most of America, thought of him as something less than human. When's his critical moment? He was a teenager, devoid of all hope, when he decided to fight back, literally, in a battle with his enslaver. Here, you're going to hear from Ken Morris, Douglas's great-great-great-grandson, David Blight, Douglas's biographer, and Jeffrey Wright, the acclaimed actor who lends his voice to Douglas in the following clip. As a teenager, Douglas was sent to a notorious slave breaker, Edward Covey. Mr. Covey had acquired a very high reputation for breaking young slaves, and this reputation was of immense value to him. Douglas was whipped continually and treated barbarically for six months. Then, one day, he resisted. At this moment, from whence came the spirit, I don't know. I resolved to fight, and suiting my action to the resolution, I seized Covey hard by the throat, and as I did so, I rose. He held on to me, and I to him. They fought for nearly two hours before Covey relented. This battle with Mr. Covey was the turning point in my career as a slave. I felt as I never felt before. My long-crushed spirit rose. Cowardice departed. Bold defiance took its place. And I now resolved that, however long I might remain a slave in form, the day had passed forever when I could be a slave in fact. Now, Ken... When I was learning about Frederick Douglass in school, his fight with Edward Covey was probably the moment that struck me the most as a kid. I remember I actually drew a scene uh, with my crayons. <laughs> yeah, I, I drew a scene with my crayons of that. Um, and I think that's what latched me on to the Frederick Douglass story uh, to begin with. Uh, how important was this fight, Ken? The fight was everything. It was an act of, of self-liberation. And so when he begins to teach himself to read and write, that was a first act of self-liberation. But this battle, which was an epic two-hour battle, and Frederick knew that he needed to be strategic in the way that he went about defeating Covey. But when, when he did, you know, he, while he wasn't physically free from his bondage, he was on his way to being mentally free. And he rose up. And he fought back. And so if you can just imagine this strong, brilliant teenage boy who had had enough, you know, this young boy that's just saying, OK, I'm done with this. A man has been made a slave. But now you've seen how a slave has been made a man. Oh, yes. Yeah, that's a resurrection story. We got to remember how talented Douglas was as a writer. He sets up that whole scene. And essentially a biblical story, because what precedes it is the story of him. He's just beaten to a pulp. He's lost his will and he just cracks. He just cracks and it just just takes Covey on. The fight becomes a kind of resurrection through violence, which is a very common theme in our culture. Americans love that resurrection through violence. So our man here knew what he was doing as a storyteller, but also it, it is the pivot of the story. Because after that, he's becoming a man. I think what it represents, too, 
it goes against, I think, the mythology of emancipation, you know, all praises to Abraham Lincoln and, you know, we're waiting for the white savior, you know, to, uh, to free the lowly enslaved, but it's Douglas exercising agency. <laughs> it's Douglas grabbing the beginnings of freedom, at least freedom of the mind as described earlier too, grabbing it by the throat. And it's about his own recognition of what is necessary. And it's taking his future precariously and literally into his own hands. And he's doing that not solely against Covey, not solely against this one individual, but against an entire system. It's just a clearly incredibly powerful moment. We've covered an audition, a clap back to a hater, and a fight of biblical proportions. After the break, how a tennis legend gets discovered. I just decided to go out and take a look. I never did it before, and I haven't done it since. Back in a moment. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Welcome back to Making. I'm Brandon Pope, and today... We're looking at some of the key moments in the young lives of the iconic folks we've covered this season. And that key moment for Serena Williams, arguably the greatest tennis player of all time, happened before she was born. How is that possible? Well, lots of parents send their kids to tennis lessons, but Serena's father, Richard Williams, he took planning and preparation to the next level. What did you know about tennis? Was it a sport you much about? No. You literally didn't know anything about the sport? No. So how did you discover it? I'm watching television in Compton, and the TV we had didn't have a remote control. A guy called Bud Collins gave a girl named Virginia Rizik a check. I don't remember how much the check was now. But I thought, that's a hell of a lot of money for four days. I went to my wife and told her, we're going to have two kids and, and become rich, and they're going to be tennis players. And she said, oh, no. Well, we did. We had two kids, and I wrote an eight-to-five-page plan for Venus. I wrote a plan for Serena on what I wish to do, how it would be done. That was Richard speaking with CNN in 2015. The plans he made for his daughters, needless to say, they worked. To explain how, I spoke with Serena's childhood coach, Rick Macy, and I asked him about the moment that changed his life forever when the Williams family convinced him to fly out to Compton, California. I actually got a phone call and uh, it was from Richard. You know, he told me I have two daughters, Venus and Serena. They're really good. And, you know, you want to come to Compton for whatever reason. And obviously looking back, I'm probably the only guy in the world saying their best vacation ever is Compton, California. That I just decided to go out and take a look. I never did it before and I haven't done it since. I went out there. And uh, that night, met at the hotel room, Venus on one leg, 
Serena on the other. And then Richard, he pulls out a piece of paper and he started grilling me. I thought I was in a deposition. So then the next day he goes, we're going to pick you up uh, at uh, seven o'clock and we're going to East Compton Hills Country Club. So at seven o'clock, they picked me up in that bus. Okay. Not a van. I get in the passenger side. Listen to this. I get harpooned in the buttock by a spring. I look in the back. There's like garbage, ball hoppers, all kinds of dirty laundry. And Meek and Venus are back there all scrunched up. I never, I never called her <laughs> Serena. I called her Meek. So about 15 minutes into the ride, I'm looking around and I'm going, this is a strange place for a country club. We pull up to a park. There's guys playing basketball, about 20 guys. People are passed out, smoking, drinking. And they see Richard. They go, hey, King Richard. They called this guy King Richard in 91. So we go across the basketball court. It parts like the Red Sea. It was like they were celebrities, you know, like it was just the craziest thing. We go onto the court. So then we started drilling. Now, here's VW and, and Meek, arms, legs, hair flying everywhere. Beads are coming off their head. And I'm going, what in God's name am I doing in Compton, California? It was like out of control. <laughs> then I said, let's play competitive points. So once we started playing competitive points, the whole landscape changed. The movement was just crazy. They started popping the popcorn, extra butter. The preparation got better. But the burning desire of both girls to get to the ball, they ran so hard, Brandon, their nose was almost on the ground. I never saw anything like it. And I went to Richard. I said, Richard, come here. And it was more about VW at the time. I said, you got the next female Michael Jordan on your hand. And he puts his arm around me and he goes, no, brother, man. I got the next two. The story of a child with talent meeting the coach that changes their life. That happened to Serena Williams. It also happened in the making story of our next subject, Kobe Bryant. Best player many believe in high school basketball in 1995. Kobe Bryant, who you see coming out onto the floor right now. Kobe was born into a basketball family. As a kid, he watched his dad, Joe Bryant, playing first in the NBA, and later in a pro league in Italy. He practiced, watched NBA videotapes, and learned via osmosis. So when Kobe and his family returned to the U.S. when Kobe was in middle school, the buzz around this young basketball phenom from Italy began immediately. And that's when Greg Downer, the basketball coach at Lower Marion High School in Ardmore, Pennsylvania, decided to check him out. I rarely ever will go down to a junior high game, even to this day. But I went to watch him play, and, and the coach was old school and passed it X amount of times where you might find a seat on the bench. Really not a lot of up and down, not a lot of chances for really anybody to display their skills, let alone Kobe. So um, I didn't get a great look at him then, but the the buzz was high enough that I invited him to practice on a weekend with with our current varsity and he came in there and he stepped into like a one-on-one drill and he was just ripping people apart and I just turned to one of my assistant coaches and I said this kid's going to be a pro. So 
you invited Kobe to a high school scrimmage. He was in middle school when this happened, correct? Mm-hmm. Wow. And he was able to hold his own. Yeah. I mean, we, we weren't great back then, but uh, <laughs> it's rare that a that a 13-year-old just physically can, can stay with a 17 or an 18-year-old. And I knew I had something really special. What stood out was young Kobe's exceptional work ethic, the Mamba mentality, in a sense, developing early. Here's Kobe's biographer, Mike Sielski, explaining how Kobe, still in high school, would prepare himself for the NBA. Kobe had a friend who was a couple years older than he was, uh, Anthony Gilbert. So Anthony and Kobe would go around to basketball courts and playgrounds in and around Philadelphia and play ball. Anthony had two jobs when he played with Kobe. Number one was to rebound for him. And then the other job that Anthony had was to scream at Kobe while Kobe went through all these drills. You're soft. (laughs) You couldn't play in the public league. You go to a white school. Kobe wanted him to do this because he knew he was going to continue to hear this throughout his career in basketball. And he wanted to kind of don this emotional armor to be prepared for it, to get ready to deal with it. Uh, there's a famous clip of Kobe's NBA career where he's standing in front of uh, a player named Matt Barnes, who was playing for the Orlando Magic at the time. Matt Barnes and Kobe Bryant say hello to each other. And Barnes is going to inbound the basketball. And Kobe's standing there guarding him. And Barnes fakes as if he's going to throw the ball in Kobe's face. He fakes the ball. I mean, and Kobe doesn't flinch. You're not going to get into the head of Kobe Bryant. Does not move. If you have a pillow fight and somebody fakes a pillow at you, don't you at least flinch? Kobe Bryant, that's the play of the game. He didn't even flinch. I maintain you can trace a line from that moment all the way back to those unique basketball games and workouts he was having with Anthony Gilbert that prepared him for a moment like that. He is the winner of all winners. He paid a steep price to become that winner. Um, It was not a straight line. There were a lot of crooked lines in there, but to me, he was uh, my Superman. And, you know, it might sound corny, but Superman's not supposed to die. In our full episode on Kobe, we dive into the crooked lines that Kobe's coach nods to there. Give it a listen. Now, this next icon we have for you truly changed the culture. He opened a million doors for queer people, young people, and so many others marginalized for their identities. It's RuPaul, Andre Charles. And note, Rue's name was known long before he created the smash hit TV show RuPaul's Drag Race. We looked at his explosive come up in the 1980s, and the walk down memory lane took us to one particular moment when Rue hit the national spotlight. It was 1989. RuPaul and his friends had just arrived from Atlanta, and they were the talk of New York City nightlife. One day, a friend asked RuPaul if they wanted to be in a music video for this up-and-coming band, the B-52s. And he said yes. Ru later told Billboard he didn't sleep the night before because he was out dancing. He left the club, hopped straight on a bus, and arrived at the set. I talked about this moment with his longtime friend and collaborator, Larry T. 
You know, the Love Shack video was really Rue's Farrah Fawcett moment because Farrah Fawcett was on a TV show where she didn't really say anything, but everybody said, who is that? I remember my dad and I waiting for Farrah to show up on this TV show. And in the Love Shack video, she plays the Farrah Fawcett role where you're watching the video and it's cute and everybody, it's like, you know, a bunch of normies dressed up in 60s gear. And then there's RuPaul like doing this crazy dance. And it was that moment where everybody that saw the video and everybody saw that video, they went, who is that? You can see him in the video leading a Soul Train line. He's dressed in all white with a regal afro towering over the other dancers. You know, I remember at the time when RuPaul showed up, I thought he had like fallen out of the sky. He was just so different from Atlantans that we knew. Here was this fully blown rock star character that just landed fully formed. And uh, I mean, there was just nothing... There was nothing like him. Uh, There were no drag role models. There were no tall, skinny, gay dudes that knew they were going to be a star. And they, you know what, that would be the first thing they would tell you when you met them, is that it it was practically, hi, I'm RuPaul. I'm a big star. Thank you so much for listening to this season of Making. This episode is our season finale. We're taking a little break, then we're going to come back next year to look at the origins of a whole new slate of influential figures. And we want to hear from you. Who do you want to hear on Making? Tell us. Email us at making at wbez.org. And once again, thank you, thank you, thank you. This episode was produced by Justin Bull and Hina Shravastava. Our executive producer is Kevin Dawson. And I'm Brandon Pope. Take care, and we'll see you soon. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Thanks for listening to the news live on WBEZ and NPR. The WBEZ stream sounds great in the kitchen on your smart speaker and anywhere on the WBEZ app. Listen every day.